Well, a few weeks ago, we began looking at the book of, the, of Jeremiah, a story about a prophet who lived 2,600 years ago, but uh, has some things to say to us that are surprisingly relevant for our day. Now, 10 years before the story we're going to look at today, something significant happened in the life of the nation of Israel. They'd been led for years by some very bad kings. One of the worst was a man named Manasseh, he ruled for 55 years, and it says he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the description of what he did is kind of an Old Testament list of no-nos, including idol worship, consulting spirits, and child sacrifice. He was a violent man. Many lost their lives during his reign. Think of Stalin and others who've done similar things during even our, in the last century. Now, in the end, God decided to judge Manasseh and the people. And uh, colorfully, we're told that God was going to wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's pretty graphic language. That's in 2 Kings 21.13. Now, late in his life, 2 Chronicles tells us that um, uh, he had a change of heart, but the damage was already done. And so when he died, his son Amon took over. Things quickly went downhill again. Amon, it says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done. He followed completely the ways of his father, worshiping the idols his father had worshipped, bowing down to them. He forsook the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and did not walk in obedience. That's from 2 Kings. 2 Chronicles adds that unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased his guilt. He became so unpopular uh, that just a few years after he took over, the officials that worked for him conspired against him and had him assassinated. Now, I think they thought that would win them favor with the people. It, it didn't. The people were so fed up, not, with, not only with Ammon, but, Ammon, but his uh, government, that they decided to clean house and killed the entire administration. So much for a thank you. The people then made Ammon's son and Manasseh's grandson, a man named Josiah King, although he was just eight years old when he became king. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, if I had to place a bet, I got a rotten grandfather, I've got a rotten father, and he's eight years old. This can't end well. Well, it did. Josiah turned out to be a remarkable leader. He had great spiritual sensitivity well beyond his years. In fact, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. That's from 2 Kings 22.2. When Josiah was about 22 years or 26 years old, something monumental took place. He had noticed people going to the temple to worship and realized that the temple was falling into disrepair. So he allocated some money from the treasurer. He recruited some of his officials and had them go find some workmen, um, some uh, craftsmen, to begin to make necessary repairs to the temple. And when the work began, the high priest found a book that had previously been misplaced. And when he read it, he realized how important it was, and so he took it to the king. When Josiah, the king, began to read it, it's called, in the text, it's called the Book of the Law, probably Deuteronomy in our Bibles. Josiah immediately recognized its significance, and it says he tore his robes, which was a symbol of humility and repentance. And the book became Josiah's spiritual and political roadmap. The book made him realize how bad things had gotten. We're told that the people were worshiping a vast array of gods. And they weren't just doing this outside of the city. They were doing it not only in the city, but in the temple itself. In fact, every nook and cranny of the temple was filled with little um, spaces created for each of these gods with their own priests and priestesses. Included, in some case, uh, in the worship of these other gods were ritual sex and child sacrifice. Well, once Josiah read this book, probably Deuteronomy, he decided to drain the swamp. 
And his objective became to clear the cultural rot out of the house of God. So he began to do that. One of the first things he did was arranged for a public reading of the book. And it wasn't just the officials who came. He had everybody from the nation, everybody who could, come and listen. And then he led a wave of spiritual and political reform. So the idol worship was eliminated. He reformed things in the temple, encouraged people to live right. And then for the first time in many years, they celebrated Passover, the holiday that commemorated the exodus from Egypt many years before. This had apparently not been celebrated for quite some time. Near the end of Josiah's life, it was said that neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength, in accordance with the law, all the law of Moses. Then when Josiah was about 38 or 39 years old, he was tragically killed in a battle with the Egyptians. Um, After Josiah, Judah would have four more kings, all of them bad. Now, it's after Josiah's death that Jeremiah gave a speech in the courtyard of the temple, the speech that we're going to look at today, and it almost cost him his life. What he did and said that day made many um, angry, and we'll try to figure out why in just a moment. Now, so keep in mind that this speech happened about 10 years after Josiah began to lead these reforms, these remarkable reforms. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, things weren't as good as you might have imagined. Although the revival was real and life-changing for some, it proved to be short-lived and superficial in the lives of many more. The pagan values that they had were so deeply entrenched that soon they were back where they started. So within 10 years of one of the greatest revivals in Israel's history, the people's hearts had cooled to God, and the nation had become uh, one of the, it was kind of one of the most tragic spiritual reversals in their history. It was only skin deep, so everything had changed and nothing had changed at the same time. So God tells Jeremiah to give a speech. Now, I mentioned the first week, and I think last week as well, that um, the book of Jeremiah is a bit confusing. First of all, it's very long. It's the longest book by word count in the Bible. It's also not in chronological order. So there are chapters that are associated with one another in a time frame, but they're in opposite ends of the book. And one of those examples is today, where the speech we're going to look at is in chapter 7, but the background for the speech is in chapter 26. So let me start by reading some of the background. This is in chapter 26, verses 2 and 3. God says to him, Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each turn from their evil ways. Then I will relent and not inflict on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they've done. So he wants Jeremiah to give this speech in the hopes that maybe they will get it and turn around and he'll be able to uh, uh, amend the plans that he has. So that's when the speech begins, and it's in chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. The words will be on the screen, but you can also follow along in one of the pew Bibles, if you wish, um, beginning on page 1150, page 1150. So here's how he begins in verse 3. He says, Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord. Now let me try to unpack what he's saying here, because he's making two points, and the first of them is shape up. That's a command. And I'll let you stay in the land. And the second is, don't believe a lie that this is the temple of the Lord. That's a warning, and I'll explain what he means by that in just a second. He explains this, the, uh, the shape up message, in verses 5 to 7. And he's saying here, reform, change your ways, and I'll let you stay here in the land. And the land, he means, is the land of Palestine, which the ancient Israelites had been given by God Um, And he he said, as long as you live faithful to me, I will let you live in this land. But what Jeremiah is saying here is you haven't been faithful. 
And so you're at risk of being expelled from the land. Here's how he says it in verses 5 to 7. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Now, place again signifies the land that they live in, but it also signifies the temple, the place that they'd been given specially to worship. One of the special features of the temple is the idea that God, was, God dwelled there with them. So what he's saying here is that if you continue on the path you're on, you're not only going to lose living in the land, you're going to lose the temple, and even more seriously, God will not be present with you anymore. To that he adds, reform your ways. That's change, or as I've phrased it, shape up. And Jeremiah isn't just talking about being more religious, i.e. using more religious talk or going to church more, but he's talking about living out their faith in tangible ways, to treat others right or to act justly, to take care of the vulnerable among them, widows, orphans, refugees, and not to follow other gods. So that's the first message he wants, and it's similar to what we talked about last week. The second fault that God finds here is what I'm calling empty religion. And this is how he explains it, kind of a false religiosity in uh, verse 8. But he says, look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you've not known? And then come to me and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe, safe to do all those detestable things. What he's getting at here is that the people had begun to see the temple as a spiritual version of a lucky rabbit's foot. So they thought of it as a safe house and believed that as long as they had that and they were there, that God was obligated to protect them from any disaster as long as they made a few appearances each year in the temple. But God wasn't having it. He says, you may think you're safe in the temple no matter what you do, but you're wrong. In fact, the temple might be the very last place that you want to be because God's there. And right now, God isn't very happy with you. And then he lets them know all the ways that they're failing. And we could, we don't have time, but we could look at it. He basically names four of the commandments. Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony. So he's talking about violence, sexual promiscuity, economic oppression, and judicial corruption. So don't do these things and then come to church on Sunday or the equivalent of and think you're covered. You're not. Because they were going through the motions of religious ritual, they had this false sense of security. And that's a temptation for us as well. We think that if we believe all the right things, show up at all the right services, look down on all the right or wrong people, that we're covered. And God through Jeremiah says, not so fast. If your words and your deeds don't match up, just because you show up at church on Sunday or perform a few sacrifices, don't think that I will overlook what happens the rest of the week. And then just to reinforce the point, he gives an historical example in verses 12 to 15. I'm not going to read it, although the words are on the screen. And let me summarize what happened. About 500 years earlier, the first place of worship that the Israelites had, this major religious center, was in a place called Shiloh. Eventually, though, it became a place that was led by some corrupt priests and leaders, and they had some wicked worship practices. And so God allowed that place to be destroyed by the Philistines. Abandoned, it soon became ruins. So at the time that Jeremiah is giving this speech, they can go see the ruins. They know what happened there. And the warning here is that if you don't shape up, if you don't give up these empty religious practices, I'm going to do the same thing here, that's in the temple, that I did there. So listen up. 
And then God says something to our ears that sounds odd to Jeremiah. Verse 16, he says, Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. So he's telling Jeremiah, don't pray. What's he getting at here? Well, what he's saying is, is that they're disobedient, judgment's coming, and if they don't reform their ways, it's not going to do you any good to pray. He says in verse 21, go ahead, add to your burnt offerings and to your sacrifices and eat the meat yourself. So he says, go ahead and do your sacrifices, but they won't do any good if you don't reform your ways. So Jeremiah, you can pray all you want, but if they don't make a, an attempt to reform, it's all in vain. Verse 22, for when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them the command to obey me, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. So he's telling them to read their Bibles, but to read it uh, in the right order. What does God want? Sacrifices and ritual? No, he says the essence of faith, even though those things are important, is relationship and obedience. So he wants them to put their faith into action, to take care of the poor, to help refugees, to adopt orphans and make sure that widows don't starve, and live righteous lives, be sexually pure, don't do anything violent, don't cheat anyone in a business transaction, or allow the courts to turn a blind eye to injustice. So with all of that, do they listen? Do they start acting differently? Unfortunately not. In verse 24, it says, they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors, this is Jeremiah speaking on God's behalf, from the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen. That's the people did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did no more evil than their ancestors. Therefore say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. So in the end, nothing's changed. Their hearts are hard. Their conduct's still rebellious. They're refusing to listen to God or even pay attention to him. And they've been warned. Now let's just summarize because in some ways what we've just looked at mirrors what we talked about last week. That Jeremiah's stump speech told the people to know, uh, to tell them what was wrong. And the stump speech included idolatry, their failure to put God first, their unrighteousness, their failure to live good and godly lives, and their injustice, the lack of their willingness to seek justice for the vulnerable. All these things were wrong, but to all this, Jeremiah adds this one more notion, and that is this idea of empty religion. Now you see that even though they knew all of this, they thought they were okay because they were still going to church, or again, their equivalent, or their version of church. They were regularly worshiping in the temple. They were offering sacrifices on all the important occasions, observing the high holidays. They knew how to use pious language. They'd learned to project an image of religious devotion, but God wasn't fooled. From, from his perspective, something was still rotten. And what he's pointing to is the problem with religion. They had turned faith into superstitious, a superst and the temple into a lucky charm. As long as they went through the motions, they figured they could sin and break God's law each week, but then show up in the temple and be safe. They believed that being Israelites, the people that God had chosen, gave them immunity from their sins. They put more trust in a building and a few religious rituals than they did in living the life that God had asked them to live. And Jeremiah saw through all of this. 
He knew that their hearts weren't in it, that there was sin and hypocrisy. It becomes so great that God no longer promised to protect them. Eventually, as we'll see in the weeks to come, he's going to allow a foreign army, the Babylonians, to come and conquer them as a consequence of their sin. Now, that was all 2,600 years ago. What do we think about today? What about us today? How can we live this out? When Jeremiah criticized the people, he made it clear that going through the emotions, or the emotions, excuse me, isn't enough. Again, I want to read from verses 22 and 23. He says, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. Now, just to add to that, chapter 12, he says something else. That's important. He says, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, you are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. So they may have religious language down, but God is far from their hearts. So he's saying they need to follow God with their well as their heads, which I think points to the idea that faith needs to be balanced. Yes, we need to believe the right stuff. In other words, doctrine matters. Despite what many might say today, there's truth, and we should understand it. And we need to live it out. That means that we need to put into practice with our will the things that God has asked us to do. And finally, we need to have the right heart, the right affections. God demands a conversion of our heart, our minds, and our wills. And God's particularly offended when we treat him like a lucky charm, as a way to get what we want without a willingness to give ourselves to him, mind, will, and heart. But if we do come to him in humility, committed to listen and obey, he's So how do we know if we're approaching God in the right way? How can we discern if we're falling into the same superstitious pattern that the people in Jeremiah's day did? How do we know if we're trusting in false assurances? Do we think that having the right opinions makes us immune from a serious evaluation of how we're living? Or is our way of life a demonstration of what we truly believe? Or is there a disconnect between our words and our actions? In order to discern this, we need to ask some hard questions. And I just have a random list, not a comprehensive list, and not even necessarily um, a great list, but five different questions that I think we can ask ourselves that at least help us move along the way of discerning if something might be wrong with our hearts. And the first question is, or the first issue is, if we are asking, how much can I get away with, instead of how can I please God, we're probably on the wrong track. Let me just give you an example from my uh, adolescence. When I was a teenager, my youth pastor and others told me and all of my friends around me um, how we were to live out our sexuality, that sex is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman and we ought to be pure in the meantime. Well, I and all my peers wanted to ask another question. How far can I go and be okay? That's the wrong question. Here's another question. Are you more concerned with the rule of law than you are with mercy. Now let me just say this, don't misunderstand me, I think laws are important, rules are helpful, but if rules and laws get in the way of just, justice and mercy, then we have misunderstood the way those things should be implemented. Let me give you one example from the life of Jesus. Matthew 23, 23, he says this, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices mint, dill, and cumin. So what they were doing is they were to tithe on their income. That was the way that they understood it. But they even tithed on what they owned in terms of of, uh, groceries. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, 
justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So following the rules is good, but it's more important that you do, you're just, merciful, and faithful. Here's the third question we need to ask ourselves, and that is, are we in any way indifferent, indifferent to the suffering of others? You see, our hearts ought to break at the things that break the heart of God. In Jeremiah chapter 7, he condemns people for treating one another unjustly, for oppressing immigrants, orphans, and widows, and for shedding innocent blood. We should not be indifferent to the suffering of others. A fourth idea. Have you knowingly taken advantage of someone else and feel no shame? Recently heard an elderly gentleman describe how when he was young, in his uh, early 20s, he had sold a defective car to someone he called a sucker. And I won't go into all the details, but this happened more than 50 years ago, and he laughed about it. The last question I have is, have we betrayed our deepest values by accepting unrighteous means in exchange for a particular end? In other words, have we justified the means by the ends? Or justified the means by the ends? It might be for personal gain or for the gain of our tribe. And I think this is a particular problem today in spheres like business and politics, where we justify the means in order to get an end that we think we want. That's not the way of the scriptures. That's just a sample of the sort of questions that we ought to be asking. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. You're thinking, now, wait a second. I thought faith was all we need. Faith in Jesus Christ, what he's done for us on the cross and his resurrection, that that's how I have a relationship with God. And you're saying I need to pile on all these things that I have to do. Well, you're right. Faith does, is the key to having a relationship with God. However, if our lives don't begin to change, then we have reason to wonder whether or not we've believed. As James, brother of Jesus, once said, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So our faith needs to, to somehow live itself out. Or we can wonder and question whether or not we really are rightly related to God. Not that we live perfectly, but there ought to be changes and transformation taking place in our lives. Jeremiah's message is a sobering one. And God repeatedly offered them a chance to make things right. But they refused because of the stubbornness of their hearts. It's also clear that had they repented, they'd chosen to obey. If they had put their faith into action, the story could have turned out very differently. God gave them repeated opportunities to turn things around. And the same is true for us. When we put God first, when we seek to care for the most vulnerable among us, and seek to live in a way that honors God, God is pleased and will be close to us and bless us. So even though it's sobering to see how persistent rebellion resulted in significant consequences, and we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks, we also need to understand they missed out on an opportunity. Imagine if they had listened to Jeremiah. What if they had repented? What if the reforms Josiah had started had taken hold? What might God have done? This is a little bit of a negative example, but I think you'll see the point. Um, in August, a friend of mine called with some sad news. He's attended a church for a long time, and he said that a staff person who's been very effective, who's been with them for many years, was recently forced to resign, I think in July, after that they discovered a pattern of sinful choices that had taken place over several years. Now, I don't know this staff person personally, but I know of him by reputation and know that there's been significant success in what he's done. And I said to my friend, wow, how in the world was he so successful when all of this deception and sinful pattern was taking place? 
My friend said, he didn't, couldn't really tell me, but he said, I think the more important question is what greater things might he have been able to do had he lived a faithful and consistent life? That's the question for the nation of Israel, and it's the question for us as well. The story of how things declined is a sad one, but imagine if they had lived out the good start that they had under King Josiah. Now, as we'll see in the next few weeks, it will get sadder, but you may be curious, how did this all turn out for Jeremiah? He gives his speech in chapter uh, 7. What happened in 26 after he gave the speech? Well, here's what it says in verse 8 of chapter 26. As soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, You must die. All the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And then in verse 11, Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, This man should be sentenced to death because he's prophesied against this city. By the way, they don't even really care what he's saying. They just don't like the fact that he has predicted the destruction of the city. Now, at this point, Jeremiah defends himself. He told them that he was just the messenger. He was telling them exactly what God had told him to say. And he reminded them, and if you repent, God's going to turn this around. And the disaster that's coming will be called off. And then he said in verse 14, As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Uh, made them even angrier, and they would have killed him except that there were a few officials who had mercy on him, stepped in and protected him, and he survived. Which is something, by the way, on our first week when we talked about Jeremiah's beginning and how he got started in all of this, something God had promised him. However, um, we find out in chapter 26 that two of his friends, Uriah, a prophet, and another man, lost their lives for speaking a similar message. So we've talked last week about all the things that went wrong, about idolatry and righteousness and injustice, and this week we've added this additional problem of false or empty religious religiosity. And it's difficult for us to keep things in balance, to put the emphasis in the right place. Many of you know that the purpose statement here at City Church is to love God and love others. And it comes from a story in Mark chapter 12 from a conversation Jesus had with a religious leader. He came to Jesus and he said, what's the greatest of the commandments? So there were all these commandments in the Old Testament and the man was asking, which is the most important? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your strength. And then he added a second one. He said, it's this, love your neighbor as yourself. And this, what many call today the great commandment, is where we get the balance right. It starts with loving God, choosing to receive the invitation offered us in Jesus, then demonstrating our loyalty to him in obedience. And it involves loving others with the love we ourselves have received from God, then living generous lives by doing ordinary things and sometimes extraordinary things with great love. So let's not make the same mistake that these ancient people made. Let's not think we can go through the motions and everything will be okay, but rather let us pursue God with our minds and our will and our hearts. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering message and a sobering uh, something to think about. And so, Father, I pray that we would, in an honest way, examine our hearts and look for places where we need to reform our own lives. But, Father, let us also take hope in the reality that if we do commit to make changes, not only will you forgive us, but you will bless us. 
and you will lead us to even greater fruitfulness as people. Father, may we live out our faith in significant ways, in the ordinary and the extraordinary of life. And may we honor you with all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.